Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Happenings in Ukraine present us with the enticing possibility that all this might be coming to an end very soon. Is there, after all, very much point discussing retirement models when we might all be retired in a very different and much more nuclear sense in the near future? But in the meantime, I suppose we do have to keep calm and carry on, and there is plenty on the pensions menu for us to break our teeth on. Our first dish this week, universal charging in default funds. The government's very keen that this should happen. I think our guests are quite keen that it should not, but we'll debate the merits of that proposal. And then next up, quite apart from charges, we can ask, is DC generally doing all it can for savers? Our colleague Stephanie Hawthorne suggests that accumulation options simply aren't fit for purpose. Just how big a problem does this pose for master trusts in particular and what should be done about it? We will hopefully find out. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Phil Brown, Director of Policy, and by Tim Gosling, Head of Pensions Policy, both at the People's Pension. And thank you both very much for joining me. We can kick off then with the question of universal charging. That means something different in pensions than it does to any layman listening who might just be suffering the perennial problem of only finding USB-Cs when they desperately need to charge an iPhone. But in our context, the government has proposed replacing the existing array of charging structures available to default funds with a single a universal model. I believe the Department for Work and Pensions previously put plans for a universal flat fee structure on hold, but it is very much keen still on universalism uh, to shield DC members in its own words from high and unfair charges and from the risk of erosion to their pension savings from such fees. That's the background to this. And I think, uh, Phil, if we can kick off with you on this. Now, I know the People's Pension hasn't been very keen on the idea of the flat fee prospect in particular. Um, do you want to explain to us sort of what the idea is and why you think it's a bad one, if that is your position? Yeah, indeed. So the the intent is actually something I don't have a problem with and we as a firm don't have a problem with. Driving comparability, driving understanding, transparency of charges to members is a very good thing. And the question is, is how you do that in a way that's A, fair to members and, and B, can be done in an orderly market sense. If, if you look at the current proposal, which is sort of on hold at the moment, it looked at doing it through an annual management charge, which we all know is an ad valorem percentage charge that gets charged every year and, and removing the other charging styles that are available at the moment. But it's very important to note that that's only done to default funds and not done to the whole market. So, so if you do that in a default fund and in master trusts working in the workplace and, and especially in auto enrollment, they're all charging percentage charges and they have a charge cap applied to them. So considering at the end of the market where there are excesses or excessive charges is probably focusing on the wrong end of the market. And bringing it in means as businesses, we have very particular challenges with lots of members who've come to pensions as a new concept and are paying contributions in. And actually, those percentage charges are, are, are relatively low given the size of funds. But there's a few members with larger funds who basically would end up with a huge cross-subsidy to the other members. And, and that's the bit where we start to struggle with it. And, and if you apply this to only to master trusts in the auto-enrollment space and only to those default funds, the rest of the market can charge other styles of charging, can find fairer ways to distribute that cross-subsidy across investments, and you end up in a position where it's not easy to service small employers. And that, that's a real challenge for us. 
there's a few master trusts that are very active in that end of the market. We're one of those, and we believe pensions should be available to everyone. This change risks that pensions being available to everyone. Tim, I don't know if you want to come in on the, on the technicalities of how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the starting point here, again, is, is simply that the minister's objectives can be, a minister's stated objective is transparency. And that can be best achieved by requiring people to show charges in pounds and pence. That's what people understand, less percentage charges where it may appear comparable to industry people, to regulators and so on and so forth. But that's not what really what members want to see. Members want to see a charge in pounds and pence. And that's what people understand. So if your objective is transparency and the minister's right there, why not do that? You made a point earlier about sort of high and unfair charges. I mean, obviously, the uh, the department recently put a de minimis in that prevents flat fees. Uh, we do levy a flat fee at about 21 pence a month, preventing flat fees from eroding pots to zero. That feels to us like the right thing to do. Uh, it's something that we put in place earlier than we needed to. It feels that if the minister's concerned about high and unfair charges, then the best thing to do is regulate charge levels, not to us to regulate charge structures, which is something that we very much rely on in order to, as Phil says, compete with retail pensions and others who are, are, are charging on a, on a different basis. Sure. So, so the minister said he, he was speaking at an event, uh, I believe, a couple of days ago, Lancad event. So he said, we, we have a cost and charging system. It's utterly incapable of price comparison. And as you say, if you, if you had simply pounds and pence, that, that would go some way toward achieving that. He went on to say that in the longer term, you should be looking to make this as simple as you possibly can. So that an individual member of the public who wishes to understand their costs and charges can do so, and then either compare uh, price or have a better understanding of what value looks like. Going slightly deeper into that, obviously, pounds and pence would give you a good comparison of, of what the, the outcome of the charge is. But if your goal is to understand how the charge has been levied or what calculations go to arrive at that, which I'm sort of playing minister's advocate, which is akin to devil's advocate, I suppose, for some people. <laughs> is there an argument still for the universal charge in order to achieve that kind of simplicity, not just pounds and pence, but also in terms of methodology and calculation? So I guess where I get to here is a lot of the time, I mean, I don't really understand consumer electronics very well, although I'm a heavy user of my phone like many people. I don't need to know how it works. I All I need to know is that it works and to see the headline information that it produces. I don't really need to see the working. And so what we what we would argue here is provided you've got a standardized means of disclosing what the charge is, both on a sort of forward looking and on a retrospective basis, on a way that can be standardized. So it's genuinely comparable. What the underlying structure is doesn't really matter that much to the end consumer. That's different to the argument about charge levels where obviously there's there's a need to regulate in order to prevent pots being run to zero and so on and so on and so forth. But provided you can see in monetary terms what you've been charged and what you're going to be charged, what you're likely to be charged, I'm not sure I'd buy the case for further standardization of the understand of the underlying structure. Sure thing. And Phil, if I can come back to you, obviously it's not just the people's pension which has been slightly critical of this proposal. And we mentioned at the top, I think that I, I can't recall if the government has still paused its proposals for the, the flat fee model, universal model. But given that there is there is criticism from across the master trust industry on this, is your has your impression been that the government is receptive to this criticism, that it might take some of this on board or that things might change or I know one of our headlines is that the minister is sort of sticking to his guns about this is which is your impression of those two 
it, it, that, that's a really a really good question. So we we were of an opinion if there are interactions with a variety of, of persons in government that actually the the sentiment here is right. We've agreed with that. Maybe what we're looking at as the first way of doing this isn't the kind of optimum way of doing it. And we were under the impression that it's a bit more challenging than it initially looked. So it was was being delayed. I guess the challenge was seeing the Lancat event sort of change that optic quite quickly. I think that what what we've got to get to is is a position where, and the minister's absolutely right here, that somebody can look at pension A and look at pension B and work out, you know, what is the right thing for me to do with two pensions if I have two pensions? Should I should I move pension A into pension B? And what are the consequences of doing that? And he's right at the moment. That's quite difficult to work out. But having just a percentage model as the methodology and, and having that applied to one part of the market isn't solving the problem. It's solving the problem in, in one fund type in one part of the market. So as Tim said, if you, if you want to improve the position for the entire market, then actually let's think about it from the, the customer, the member's perspective. And, and that's what leads you to think if, if it's in pounds and pence and you know how much you're paying in pounds and pence, you can compare pension A and comp- pension B very easily. But what we probably need to do over a period of time is move that conversation to one about value for money and, and not purely about charges. It's about what, what is the charge getting you and, and what does value for money look like? And it's good that both the regulators are, are looking at this um, and working together on it because it's a really important change of emphasis from, from charges to value for money. So sticking with value for money briefly, because that, that's been forefront of people's minds when it comes to consolidation as a general theme. Um, and I know quite a lot of people have been expecting the master trust market to, to begin itself consolidating at some point. I think some estimates has, has put the, the, the eventual figures around 15. If one of the problems with, say, that the charging structure has been presented is that it actually it, well, it has a significant economic impact, particularly on master trusts, which deal with smaller smaller schemes. They, they can't cover their costs with this particular model. Would an argument, I mean, I'm again trying to play advocate for somebody else's position would this not lead itself to a kind of consolidation in the end that you might end up with a master trust market which is consolidated which can accommodate this kind of charging structure and still provide its services for members of smaller schemes in other words is it not just a vehicle for consolidation intended or otherwise or is that very speculative i'm, I'm not sure it's that simple so the, the, the way you make this work is with scale and, and if you look at us as a scheme, we're just short of 6 million members, um, 17 billion in assets. So we're, we're well on the way to scale. But the problem that's not solving, and I accept this is being worked on, we're quite actively involved in that activity, is that in amongst all that, we still have this challenge of the proliferation of small pots within the auto-enrollment space. And actually, that drives significant inefficiency into the system. And we've got to take that inefficiency out to, to think about things like charging on an equivalent basis across different schemes, because the inefficiency is tremendous. From memory, there's, there's something in the region of 4 million pots that are worth £100 or less. And it costs the same to administer those in, in, in fixed asset costs as it does to administer funds that, that are valued at 3000 or 6000 The charges that are applied obviously change over time as funds change in value. But, but we've got to take out some of these inefficiencies in the market to really think hard about how we could look differently at charges and, and, and types of charges. 
And Tim, if I ask one more if, of you, if that's okay. Obviously, we, we've mentioned um, small parts a few times in the, in the course of this part of the programme. I think it was one of the other things that, that came out of the minister's uh, appearance at Lancaster was that the, the uh, government does not intend to legislate any further on the small parts question until after the next election. Bearing in mind all that has been said before about the importance of, of securing efficiency and dealing with that particular problem, uh, would that is that time frame was that expected, or is that something that should perhaps be slightly further up the government's priority list than it is? So it was expected. I do think it is very important. I think it's going to be very difficult for the industry to bring forward a means of consolidating small pots without government action because of the the, the absence of a legislative route to, to automatic consolidation that we can use. So, I mean, I think we've been discussing whether or not it would be possible to use bulk transfer without consent as a route. But that very quickly runs into issues around extent of member detriment in the instance of of transfer without consent. They're quite difficult to bridge. So I think this is something that we will return to over time. It's also worth noting that there are a couple of things in the 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 Small Pots Working Group report, the the policy process that went through several months back, particularly around consolidators, particularly around Potfollow's member, that would be, I think, virtually impossible to operationalize without a further lead from government. So I think there are things the industry can do in the interim. We can look at the administrative side of things, in particular, how it might be possible to drop the unit cost of transfers such that automatic consolidation is sort of economically viable. But I do think we are at some point going to be returning to DWP and saying, look, we've taken this as far as we can. It's probably going to be necessary for you to legislate. But here are the things that the industry has done. We haven't just sat on our hands for 24 months and achieved nothing. We have thought a bit about the technical solutions that might sit behind whatever policy option you want to bring forward. Fantastic. In which case, we'll move on to the, the final part of the programme, sticking with the sort of the Master Trust theme. Typically, erudite piece from our Stephanie Hawthorne explains that Master Trusts are potentially losing millions of pounds to retail platform providers and independent advisors uh, due to the inflexibility of their offerings. This is despite fees and charges often being lower in Master Trusts uh, than their competitors. Stephanie quotes Philip Parkinson, of a partner and head of DC at Mercer, who sums up the problem as this. There is something, he says, of a two-tier system at present in the workplace pension area, where the workplace market caters more for the accumulation phase, while the retail private wealth market caters more for decumulation. An unhappy consequence of this situation, though, he continues, is that the majority aside from the most affluent do not tend to take advice. There is too much poor decision-making and far too many members are lost along the way. So, um, Tim, do you want to kick us off with this one then? Why is there this, I'm assuming that you agree that there is this bifurcation between the, the retail and, and, the, and the occupational sector in terms of decumulation and accumulation. Why does that exist and should it exist and what can you do to fix it? Well, it comes. I think part of it comes back to scale. We are still building scale. DC is not yet at scale as a as a as a sort of conceptual thing in in the UK yet. And so, part of this, I think, will happen organically um, as master trusts simply get bigger, pot sizes get larger, and consolidation becomes easier through dashboards. And we would expect to see pensions dashboards being integrated into providers' offerings quite early on. We think that master trusts will bring forward decumulation approaches that are more sophisticated than they currently offer. I mean, obviously, we're still considering our options, so we're not ready to bring something forward yet, but we may have news on that in the future. 
So I think a lot of it tracks back to scale. And I would see things changing as essentially pots become larger and consolidation becomes easier and is enabled increasingly by fintech. I think Master Trust will look to make use of that kind of option. Sure thing. And, and Phil, do, do you have a, an opinion on this? Is this, I mean, obviously we've heard that there's a large uh, potential for organic growth in, in this area. Is there anything happening sort of on the regulatory level or that should happen on the regulatory level to encourage this kind of growth along? Well, the, the TPR will be looking at um, decumulation later this year, as will, will DWP. The only thing I'd add to what Tim said is if, if you think about auto-enrollment conceptually, it's 10 years old this year. Um, that's relatively young. So a lot of the people going through auto-enrollment that reach retirement still have re- relatively modest funds. So that what may look like kind of second tier, I think you put it, offerings, are actually offerings that are tailored towards what people are using at the moment. As those funds increase in value and as the number of members coming to retirement really starts escalating, which it will do over the next 10 years, then you'll see master trusts bringing forward a lot more options in, in this area. But at the moment, you've got to think about it in the context of the number of people they're trying to serve, how many people they've brought into the system, and, and how many of those people are actually exiting the system. And, and the number of those exiting the system at the moment, by, by which I mean those are coming to the stage where they want to retire, is a lot lower than the numbers coming in. So that kind of gives you a frame around the activity that's going on. And we, as other master trusts, are focused on this area and focused on, on what we deliver in this area. And as Tim said, you know, when we're ready to, to come forward and talk in the market about what we're, we're doing in this space, um, we'll be kind of doing that. Well, that's something for us to look forward to then, because I'm sure we'll end up covering it. But um, fantastic. I think this brings us toward the, the close of the principal part of the program, at least. We can move to our always a pension angle or any other business uh, section of the show. If either of you have the, a suggestion for us this week, I'd be happy to talk it through. Yeah, as you said right at the beginning, there's been a, a week of, of fun news. So uh, I think that the challenge... I would lay down. There's a lot of talk about gamification at the moment, and that that's certainly got a place in, in how we try and engage with members, customers, and, and how we try and interact with them. I personally think that that it's not a silver bullet. It's just one of the things we need to do to help people understand pensions. I'd still like the whole industry to focus a lot more on language, by which I mean we, we still use terms that are kind of alien to the member or the customer. And, and we use words that have very, very specific meanings in financial services. And the word I always come back to is advice. Now, in financial services, you use the word advice. What you mean is personalized recommendation, which is very different words to what a, a consumer would use. And a consumer would use a word like advice, and they would use it interchangeably with information, guidance, and, and maybe other words. So actually, I think we need to focus a lot more on, on language, and we've got to get language right, and we've got to demystify pensions and make it so people who want to engage can engage quickly because they, they can intuitively understand what we're talking about. Having things like uncrystallized pension fund lump sums, I, I don't think is is helpful as a set of words to any person in the market other than those of us who work in pensions and know what it means. So, so we've, we've really got to solve this language problem and at the same time be thinking about innov- innovations like gamification. But, but the language issue is a really big one. I mean, it's, we've, wor- we've worked hard on, on tone of voice over a number of years. But what doesn't help the retail consumer is that they're probably getting three, four, five different documents 
from different organizations that all use subtly different language. So we've got to find some way of really stripping this back and making it understandable. For me, that, that's been something I've been focused on a long time. And I don't, I don't think as an industry, we're there yet. So simpler statements is a huge step forward. Um, having standardized simpler statements coming from a range of schemes is another step forward. But we've got to start building that stuff into our, our general communication. I, I always think of you join a pension scheme, you get this very big pack of documents about what you've just done you should just be getting something that say you've, you've you've done an awesome thing today you've started taking control of your retirement let's really strip it back and think about the purpose of every single document we send to, to members and why and when i say think about purpose i think i think that's the industry that's government that's regulators thinking about the purpose of every interaction what do we want members to do or feel and what action do we want them to take? So, so why is this document actually being sent? So I think really stripping things back and looking at the entire um, member journey is, is something that's part of that language challenge. Absolutely. I think my first year on the job consisted in pretty much nothing apart from working out what on earth people meant when they told me words that I thought I knew the plain English meaning of, but it turns out in pensions had a very, very different one. So yeah, if devotees of plain English, I'm sure we'll get behind you on that. But um, that brings us into the close of the program. Thank you both to Phil and to Tim very much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening with us. As ever, we will be back in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.